establishing connection to science night. Please stand by. Hey everyone, Just James here. This is a quick bonus episode brought to you by our friends over at Indiana Sciences. Basically, they invited me to come talk at their panel about the science of science fiction at this year's Gen Con. I braved virtual Indianapolis to talk about cryptids, and you're going to hear a portion of that presentation. Now, if you want to hear the rest of this night's panel and an additional panel that happened the night before on Thursday, go over to indianasciences.org. They have so much great information. Check them out wherever they are. They stream on YouTube, Twitter, on, on Twitch, you know, the, the mainstreaming thing. So check them out wherever they are. They do some great work, and we're happy to be included in things that they do. So without further wasting of your time, here is a quick bonus episode, The Science of Science Fiction, where I talk about cryptids. Thank you for having me back to another Gen Con, to virtual Indianapolis. Uh, like Rufus said, my name is James Reed. Uh, he did give me that professor title that I've been wanting for years, but I am just a, a humble lab director. So, But since it's been said online, I think it's true now. So I will be uh, submitting that uh, payroll application to Dartmouth College. So if you were here last year... Welcome back. You may remember my critically acclaimed presentation of the anthropology of cryptozoology, colon, it's probably a bear, where I talked about how cryptids work their way into modern folklore. This year, I am also going to be talking about that, but changing it ever so slightly so as to make it novel enough to be published again. I'm sure no one has ever done that before. And just like last time, the subtitle will be revealed at the end. Tonight, I'm going to approach the topic of cryptids using an anthropological framework, which is the study of humanity, specifically their evolution and culture. But like, fun. I promise not to debate structural functionalism using chupacabra as a case study or discuss neolocal modernity within post-sedentary yeti kin groups using the push-pull factors of colonial British hegemony from 1835 to 1850 as a framework. To all the anthropologists out there, I bet you were not expecting a great game reference in the intro to this talk. And to all of the non-anthropologists watching this, um, they don't know what those words mean either. What I will talk about is how these creatures work their way into our folklore, how their stories changed over time, and then I am going to do something absolutely ridiculous and hopefully fun. I will create a backstory for my favorite modern cryptid. Think of it as like a science-y world-building exercise. So we have to answer the very pressing question of what is a cryptid? A cryptid is very simply just an animal that is claimed to exist but has never been proven to. Cryptozoology theoretically 
would be the study of their behavior, structure, classification, and distribution. In reality, cryptozoology by definition cannot actually exist because once a cryptid is proven to actually be a real thing, it falls under the discipline of zoology or biology, which is the study of living animals, living things, that sort of thing. And I know what you're saying. I thought cryptids are fake. And while it's true that the creatures on the screen right now are fantastic beasts that we have no idea how to find, we do in fact have proof of the existence of mermaids, kraken, and sea serpents. We just call them manatees, squid, and oarfish now. And fun fact, based on Christopher Columbus's own writing, he probably almost definitely tried to engage in, we'll say, diplomatic relations with a manatee. Also note how these are all sea creatures, and I, I hate to break it to you, but if you think you're going to encounter a cryptid on land, it's probably a bear. It's just, like, really unlikely that something as big as a Yeti or a Bigfoot has yet to be discovered. However, there is proof potentially of something like that happening into our past. Gigantopithecus is an ancestor of modern orangutans that lived in China and Southeast Asia a really, really long time ago. There is some debate as to its size, but it likely came in over nine feet tall and weighed about 600 pounds, which is big, like really big, like if you stumble, I, I am not that big. I would be horrified. There's also some debate as to when it went extinct, but some evidence suggests it could have coexisted with humans briefly. If you look at the image on the left, ooh, let me turn my, my thing into a laser pointer. If you look at the image on the left here, you can see how big a Gigantopithecus skull was in relation to a modern anatomical human. Now, lots of cryptid hunters would make the leap that some members of these species survive to this day in the Bigfoot Yeti group, but this is almost definitely not the case. However, I can't deny that if a human did ever stumble across a Gigantopithecus sometime well into the past, it would be alarming to say the least. And if that person was anything like me, they would never shut up about it, ever, for the rest of their lives. So while I'm not prepared to submit Gigantopithecus as evidence for the Bigfoot or the Yeti in real life, I do see the possibility of this creature entering into the folklore capable of traveling through time and space to this very moment. So, to the person that stumbled upon a Gigantopithecus and lived to tell the tale... We salute you. For the rest of the night, we'll be talking about the cryptids that remain hidden. Since we can no longer rely on the realms of biological anthropology, we will pick up the toolkit of cultural anthropology. Everyone's really excited about that, I can tell. The cryptids of folklore and myth are fascinating and fantastical creatures. 
They are the things that mark the edge of the map. They are the monsters. In here, there be monsters. They are enigmatic things that capture our imagination and warn us about the consequences of venturing too far from the norms of civilization. While there is a lot of justified criticism about his scientific technique, I think the man pictured here, Bernard Hovelmans, his definition of a cryptid is pretty good. He states that a cryptid must contain one trait that is truly singular, striking, emotionally upsetting, and thus capable of mythification. Going off his own definition, I think this image of Bernard Hovelmans and his friends is probably a cryptid because I am emotionally upset for sure. And now that we've defined what a cryptid is, let's talk about how they work their way into our culture and how they change over time. Ooh. Many of the most well-known cryptids began as figures in indigenous culture. And while there is a ton of variation in each culture, they tend to initially serve as a beginning that is as a being that is tasked with protecting something. It's, it's protecting either something from or for that in, uh, indigenous original culture. Now, the Lenape culture originally lived in the area that now consists of New Jersey and parts of Pennsylvania and New York. Their culture included a masked figure that we see here on the left uh, that is known as Misingui. And they acted as the keeper of game animals in their hunting grounds. And the most striking characteristic of Misingwe is that distinct black and red carved wooden mask that it would wear. It's kind of like a large kind, uh, kind of Bigfoot looking thing that would wear this carved mask. And then also the Lenape people would carve this mask into trees in areas that they wanted to ward off other groups from. And on the right, the Highland Nepalese uh, and Tibetan culture, specifically the Sherpa, which I will stress right here that Sherpa is a culture, not an occupation. They have something called the Meto Kangmi, or we call the Yeti, which protected the sacred peaks of the Himalaya. However, Western culture would probably have you think that this was a lot more important than is reality for uh, that, that region. Now, especially in colonial North America, the strict religious and governmental hierarchy was imposed to make sure that the community survived. It has been noted that they, it has to be like, we got to talk about this. They didn't try to like adapt or anything. They just tried to make Britain happen in the new world. So uh, that's, I guess, a conversation for another time. Now on the left, we have the popular colonial depiction of the Jersey Devil, whose look was inspired by Masingwe, but specifically it's like a striped thing, and that is really what they took from the Masingwe lore. And then they mixed it with a demon from European folklore. 
The story goes that a woman in Leeds, New Jersey, while giving birth to her 13th child, and I am sure that the 13th is very important to the tale, exclaimed, let this one be a devil. And it was. After birth, the seemingly normal-looking baby began to morph into a demonic creature with the head of a goat, the body of a horse, and the wings of a bat. And this really did a good job at keeping young children in line and from wandering too far into the Pine Barrens. Um, fun fact, at one time there was a traveling exhibition in the region, so New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, uh, that boasted a real Jersey Devil. That's really exciting. We have confirmation of a Jersey Devil. It was actually a kangaroo painted in stripes with rings attached to its back, and the keepers would occasionally poke it with a nail attached to a stick so that it would jump around and scream a lot. So, go humans! The Yeti on the right morphed into what we call the Abominable Snowmen when British explorer C.K. Howard Burry reported seeing something while surveying Everest and incorrectly translated his Sherpa guide's Metokongmi as Mechkongmi, which changed the meaning from wild man to filthy man. And the Abominable Snowman is a member of the Bigfoot slash hairy man trope, including things like Sasquatch and, and that sort of thing. Um, they are part of what I would call like the most colonial thing ever, and that is creating an other in the wilderness, because the British loved having something that is just human enough to be transposed onto some of the more remote indigenous cultures, which is super depressing to think about when we're riding like the Matterhorn or Expedition Everest at Disney. The final form is turning into marketing material. And just as like a quick side note, apparently the NHL has a thing for cryptids. Uh, you can see Masingwe here on the left, Metokongmi here on the right. They are alive and well as the mascots for the New Jersey Devils and the Colorado Avalanche. Although I, I've seen also that the Colorado Avalanche have apparently changed their mascot to a rabbit, which I don't know. What are we? What are we doing? What are we doing in Colorado? Get get. Let's get the things together and get the Yeti back into that costume. This is how most of us interact with cryptids. Uh, I personally live in Vermont now. Uh, and Sh Lake Champlain is patrolled by the friendly champ. And while we are now in virtual Indiana, real Indiana has lots of cryptids all over the place, from the Meshikenbach in Lake Manitou to the Pukwudgies of Madison County. And Pukwudgies are like little, we've talked about these big, big cryptids, but these are like little things that will either uh, bring, you, bring you trinkets or take trinkets away from you. Uh, depending on how you interact with them, I'm assuming. Now, I've really just scratched the surface here, and you can see how most of the stories that we hear about a cryptid are only part of a full history. You know, you may have heard 
a portion of the Jersey Devil tale and how that came apart. Like a woman's 13th child, she's screaming because she's got 13 children in the colonial era. But they usually don't go far back into the lore and make that correct connection to the uh, original indigenous culture. And you can use this idea that lore changes over time as it comes in contact with other cultures or just evolves over time when building your own world to add a layer of depth and complexity, which is what we're all trying to do, right? We're here at Gen Con. We're trying to create these rich and, and wonderful worlds for our players. And to prove this concept, I am going to weave a tapestry of a backstory for my favorite cryptid, which will be revealed at the end of this little jaunt back into the past. Now, for our cryptid's backstory, I am absolutely not going to co-opt any non-European indigenous traditions. I'm just not going to do it. Instead, I will be using trolls from North, Norse and Germanic folklore. These, we'll say interesting creatures, live far away from humans, and they inhabited either the forests, mountains, or swamps of Scandinavia and continental Europe. The word troll comes from a lot of different places. Uh, what I've found to be most uh, believable is that it comes from a proto-Germanic word for fiend or demon, and it is just troll. And they keep us out of the wild places with threats of eating us. As this area became more Christianized, uh, they served as the reminder of the old gods. They specifically would not be Christian uh, creatures. They would, in fact, hunt out people who had adopted Christianity as their faith. So they were the reminder of the old gods, and they, they either protected, depending on how you read it, they either protected or just inhabited these once sacred spaces. So either they were protecting a sacred space to the old religion, or they were used as a way to dehumanize the people who still had those beliefs in a Christian context. Um, obviously, this is a huge oversimplification of troll folklore. There are people with PhDs that just go into troll folklore in Scandinavia and Germany. I only have so much time, so we're going to keep it at this. And we're going to get to know the backstory of my favorite cryptid. So, here we have our subject in their original form. He is called the Gifrosian, derived from the High German word, verb meaning to freeze. He is solitary, nearly impossible to damage, and ferociously territorial. Normally found in the dead of winter, traveling through the Black Forest region of Germany, their long, thick fur, especially on their face, almost gives the appearance of an old man with a beard and cape. Their robust upper bodies make them walk with the appearance of a hunch, made more apparent by their affinity for carrying long clubs that give the unwary an impression of a simple cane or walking stick. They patrol the rivers and dark places of the forest, keeping intruders away from their sacred gathering places. The fact that they're only seen alone or in pairs would make one think that they're loners. In fact, 
They have an ancient and rich culture, communicating status, group affiliation, even kinship with their ornate headpieces they create over a lifetime. But beware, for few that come across the gathering of a Gafrosian become little more than an opportunity to add human bone to their ornamentation. Outcasts living on the fringe of society regularly live trinkets on the outside of their houses in the winter in hopes that the Gifrosian will take it and move along. Much like we will move along forward in time. Our fierce friend from the German Black Forest has abandoned Europe and moved across the Atlantic to Pennsylvania. As German immigrants settled the valleys of central Pennsylvania, the area I am originally from, they brought their folklore with them, fitting it onto the new horrors that awaited them in coal country. I always remember my grandparents warning me of the Grex. Its name derived from the Pennsylvania German word for screaming. Its appearance is similar to, but legally distinct from, the Belschnickel pictured here. The Grex first would come in the night and take disobedient children back to its lair inside the many abandoned coal mines in the area. Maybe the Grex is a wild man that abandoned polite society, or perhaps the German Viners found something other than anthracite in the deep places of the Black Hills. All we know for sure is that when you see a light high on the mountain, the Grex is awakened. Now that we have created the bare bones of the lore for our modern cryptid, it is probably time for the big reveal. It is obviously Gritty, the beloved mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers, taking his final form as NHL marketing material. This is by far my favorite cryptid. I mean, like, look at him. I would absolutely say that Gritty is unexpected, paradoxical, striking, emotionally upsetting, thus worthy of mythification. It strikes, maybe not like fear, but definitely a feeling of deep unpleasantness into the hearts of opposing players and fans, and he protects the home ice from invaders. But he also serves as a symbol of hope and perseverance to the underdogs living in Philadelphia and a symbol of what is going on in Philly to the rest of the world. Now, it's very obvious that I had some fun with this topic, but you can see how the idea, these, these ideas, they, they like move through a culture, they evolve over time, they change when they come into contact with other cultures. Most of what cultural anthropology is doing is stuff like this. They, they want to learn about how different groups of humans interact and how interactions cause changes within one culture or another and how things move forward into the future. And we can use these same tools in world building and it really fleshes out a backstory. So with that, I, I really hope that you enjoyed this completely fresh and not in any way derivative of last year's presentation. The Anthropology of Cryptozoology colon the one with Gritty. 
If you want to hear the rest of this presentation and an additional presentation from a different night, go to indianasciences.org. As always, if you want to follow our podcast, check us out at our home on the web, scinight.com. That's S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T dot com. This was just a bonus episode. We have another episode coming out for you later this week. We'll have our normal Friday release where we talk with David J. Peterson. I'm so excited for you to listen to that. And that's, like I said, coming out later this week. That's going to do it for me. My name is James Reed. If you want to follow me, I am at James underscore Reed three on Twitter and follow Science Night at Science Night 1. We will see you in one week. Until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about all of our great shows, go to riverpower.xyz.